This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mieleni minun tekevi, aivoni ajattelevi. Lähteäni laulamahan, saani sanelmahan. Sukuvirta sultamahan, laivirta laulamahan. Sanat suussani sulavat, puheet putuilevat. Kielelleni kerkiävät, hampahilleni hajovat. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Episode 5, The Walking Tour, Part 3. Last time, we discussed the British Isles in what turned out to be a very detailed look at a very important archipelago. This week, we're going to look at Scandinavia, an area that in 1300 was in many ways only just joining Europe. Though extremely powerful during the Viking Age, the Scandinavian societies were pagan and largely illiterate, putting them well outside the cultural sphere of Europe. Instead, they were perceived as the barbarians howling at the gate. But by 1300, they had been converted to Christianity, were becoming literate, and, most importantly for us, were coming within the historical record. And yet, as we'll see, this process was still ongoing in 1300. This is going to lead to conflict that will persist throughout our story, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start by identifying Scandinavia. Scandinavia, for our purposes, includes the modern states of Iceland, Norway, Finland, and Sweden in their entirety, as well as the entire Dretland Peninsula, the majority of which is Denmark but which contains some Germany, as well as the regions of Carolina and the Kola Peninsula, which are now part of Russia. Mainland Scandinavia is, for our purposes, a sort of sickle-shaped peninsula that hangs over northern Europe. At its base, where it is attached to the Eurasian mainland, is a string of lakes connected by the Neva River, which for our purposes is going to serve as the southern border of Scandinavia. Just south of this border, outside Scandinavia proper, and on the western side of this region, is the modern-day city of St. Petersburg in Russia, if that helps anyone orient themselves. From this border area, the peninsula runs north, a landscape of tumbled hills surrounding a bewildering number of lakes. 
This kind of geography is common in Arctic and subarctic regions, and is very similar to the kind of landscape you can find in parts of Canada or in the state of Maine in the U.S. In the middle of the peninsula is a higher, more tumbled region of hills that run in a north-south direction. After running north for some ways, this land mass runs into a curved mountain chain. If we are talking about the Scandinavian peninsula as being sickle-shaped, the curved mountain chain would represent the blade, while the stuff we've just been talking about would be the handle. All right? This is kind of an oversimplification on a bunch of levels. Firstly, it leaves out Jutland and Iceland, but as I said, this is mainland Scandinavia. We'll get to those in a minute. But this sickle image also only talks about the mountainous spines of mainland Scandinavia. Off of the sickle are a number of sort of bulbous peninsulas. For those who are familiar with the Swedish children's characters, the Woman Trolls, I've always thought these peninsulas sort of looked like their noses. As far as I can tell, this interpretation was not intentional on the part of Tove Jansen, but I thought I'd mention it anyway. So these peninsulas that look like the noses of Moomin Trolls are actually pretty important to understanding the geography of the region. And unfortunately, they don't seem to have any proper names, or at least none that I can find. If anyone out there knows the proper names of these peninsulas, please let me know, and it'll help us make this a little bit more clear. But for now, I'm going to have to reference the states that are currently on the peninsulas as the next best thing. The first peninsula is the southern tip of the modern state of Norway. This peninsula is formed around the tip of the sickle, as I've described it. The area is extremely mountainous in the interior, and while it's more hilly in the exterior, it's very rocky. On the northeastern side of the peninsula, near its base, there is actually a wide, fertile plain that serves as the border between this peninsula and the next one over. That next peninsula over contains the Swedish country of Gotaland, which makes up the southern third of the modern state of Sweden. This is on the inner side of the sickle and it forms a peninsula of its own. Though there are some hills in the interior of this area, it's mostly flat and has many lakes. This topography continues up the inner side of the sickle, so that the mountains are on the outside or the convex side of the sickle, and a broad lowland plain is on the inner or concave side of the sickle. If we return to where the sickle blade meets the handle, there is another peninsula, this one hanging off the back side of the sickle pointing away from the blade. This is the Kola Peninsula, and of all the peninsulas, it looks most like a Moomin Troll's nose. It is largely hilly, but not mountainous. It would probably be considered fertile if it were not above the Arctic Circle. The last bulbous peninsula on mainland Scandinavia sticks out of the left or western side of the handle, and that makes up the southern third of the modern state of Finland. As I've noted, it is a hilly area with many lakes and with a fertile belt around the coast. This mainland part of Scandinavia all rests on the same microplate, and has had a quite exciting geological history. The plate is called the Baltic Shield, and the sickle blade of mountains, running from the Kola Peninsula to the tip of the sickle, was pushed up in impacts with Greenland, when the dinosaurs had not yet evolved, when both features were located much further south, in the middle of a gigantic supercontinent. This ancient landmass eventually broke up, and the seafloor spread apart in the middle of what had once been mountains. Imagine if India suddenly threw it into reverse and started going south, leaving the northern half of the Himalayas separated from the southern half by an ocean. Interestingly, the mountains were then almost entirely eroded during the various ice ages, but the process left the entire Baltic shield compressed, like a spring. When the glaciers retreated, the land started to rise, while weathering and some of the remaining glaciers continued to cut down, resulting in the shape we see today. This shape is particularly characteristic of Arctic environments. Lowland areas are usually 
fertile and heavily forested and full of lakes, though if cleared they can make good farmland. The mountains are rugged and cut into numerous narrow valleys called fjords. These are similar to the valleys we just saw in Scotland, but tend not to cross the entire mountain chain because of the difference in the way the mountains were built. So just to review, we have mainland Scandinavia, all on the same microplate, which is shaped like a sickle, but with four bulbous peninsulas hanging off of it. Norway is in the west with its peninsula, and Sweden under the blade. Then the Kola Peninsula pointing away from the blade, and Finland on the western side of the handle. So much for mainland Scandinavia. Now let's turn our attention to the offshore areas. First and closest at hand is Jutland. Let's go back to the tip of the sickle. It comes very close to mainland Europe, but another peninsula actually juts out from Europe to meet it. This is Jutland, and apparently it's named for an ancient Germanic tribe, and not because of the jutty nature of the peninsula. This seems an odd coincidence to me. At any rate, this peninsula runs north-south, and it also looks like the nose of a moomin troll. It is mostly flat and boggy, but with some hilly terrain in the west, a continuation of the mountains of Scandinavia. It is most famous as the home of the modern state of Denmark. Denmark does not, however, occupy the whole peninsula. Due to various issues that fall outside of our podcast's time frame, Denmark lost the bottom third of the peninsula in a war with Prussia. Let's go ahead and include all of Jutland, down to a line formed by the mouth of the Elbe River and the small town of Charbutz. This is an entirely arbitrary line that I made up, except that it is roughly in line with the rest of the coast of Germany, and it means that Hamburg and Lübeck are in Germany, which is going to be important in a few episodes. Jutland also contains a group of islands, the Danzig Islands, the two largest of which are called Funen and Zeeland. Funen is west of Zeeland, and they lie off the coast, midway up the peninsula, between Jutland and the Swedish peninsula that we mentioned, called Gotaland. These islands are actually very large land masses, and comprise much of the surface area of modern Denmark. We're going to come back to these islands shortly. For now, let's move on to Iceland. Iceland, as I hope everyone knows, is the island in the North Sea between the British Isles and Greenland, created by ongoing volcanic activity at the fault that separates Eurasia from North America. It is mountainous in the middle and the northeast, and flatter and more fertile on the outside, but particularly in the southwest. It may originally have been settled by a group of Scottish or Irish monks, but monks don't tend to procreate, and records are a little scanty. They may have died out, but either way, by the year 900, Vikings had established permanent settlements on Iceland. I should say a few words here about the Vikings, because they're going to come up repeatedly in this episode, and in fact appeared several times already in the last episode. They fall rather outside our ken, being active between 739 and 1066, but their legacy is going to loom large in our story. The Vikings come down to us in recorded history as a group of terrifying raiders and settlers that ravaged Europe using long, ore-powered vessels with shallow drafts that were still surprisingly seaworthy. These bold navigators sailed thousands of miles, sowing destruction anywhere in Europe within easy distance of an even vaguely navigable river. Of course, the records we have were written by their victims, the Vikings themselves being largely illiterate. A lot of study has recently gone into trying to discern more about who these people were and what drove them into such orgies of destruction, and indeed how much of their reputation is even deserved. The boats at least are well attested, and archaeological evidence shows that they reached as far west as Newfoundland in North America, and as far east as the Black Sea between Russia and Turkey at the very least. But not all these areas were affected equally. Spain, for example, saw some sporadic raids, but was so far from Scandinavia that these were not a constant menace. Similarly, the colonies established in North America died out pretty quickly due to lack of support. 
Nonetheless, their impact on the societies of Britain is very well attested, and their colonies in the steppes and forests of Asia would one day grow to become Russia. One thing that is also clear is that the name Viking was a generic term, and that the name concealed numerous tribes answering to various kings. There is a large amount of speculation about what caused the Vikings to begin raiding, and specifically to begin when they did. One element that may have been important is that the maritime tribes of Jutland, which controlled the mouth of the Baltic Sea, were conquered by the empire of Charlemagne, removing a check from the tribes further east. Others have suggested a lack of food as an issue. From what I have learned from studying nascent Scandinavian culture for this episode, I think that it is clear that there was an intense mixture of warfare and trading going on in Scandinavia. The land is not very fertile, and most communities lived by fishing and trading for food, even in the Middle Ages. Finding goods to trade for food was vital, and so these goods were acquired either through trade or through theft, and then they were either traded on or stolen by the next guy in the food chain. By comparison to our modern economy, where goods are always sold for money, or at least peacefully traded, this may seem barbaric, but I would posit that most trading societies start this way. Reading the Iliad, one gets a very Viking feel from the way Greek mariners interacted with their world. They would wash up on a shore and either beg the locals for help or take it by force, depending on the circumstances. This view is backed up by Herodotus and other sources as well. As is so often the case, the label of civilization really depends on which end of the sword you stand. The domestic life of the Vikings is often difficult to reconcile with their raid-dependent trading culture. The goods found in Scandinavia do show their contact with the outside world, but as is so often the case, the goods found in Norse homes of this period are wonderfully mundane. Cups, plates, jewelry, the stuff of normal domesticity. Given the reputation, one half expects dragon saddles and Flintstone-style clubs, but no, the Vikings were just normal people. Three things brought this period to an end, it would seem. The rise of more organized, defensible political structures in Western Europe was one aspect. You know, once the Normans took over England and fortified it, there were fewer opportunities out west for Vikings to raid. This was the favored sole reason during the 19th century, and that is why the conventional historic end date of the Viking Age was set at 1066. But Viking raids had been tapering off for a century by 1066. The other big issue was that monarchies had begun to consolidate power in Scandinavia as well. This meant that raids in this later phase of the Viking Age were better organized and more dangerous, but also less frequent, as the kings brought their armed men within the state, and they were less free to roam around engaged in wanton pillage. The final curtain ringing in the Viking Age was the rise of the Wendish pirates. These were Viking settlements, in fact, who were as actively engaged in stealing trade goods as their northern Baltic counterparts. But if everyone is stealing from everyone, then you don't so much have a trade network as a battle zone. Essentially, the different parts of the Viking trade system became politically separated and then turned on each other and ate the system from the inside out. So with fewer goods coming in from the west, a severely constricted outlet for those goods to the east, and monarchies at home keeping men from being men, the Viking Age gradually wound down. So that was all a very interesting aside, but the point is that some of these Vikings settled on Iceland, and they established a sort of primitive republic. Unfortunately, by 1300, this original government had fallen apart, as a powerful group of chieftains had amassed enough power to take control, but their constant feuding amongst themselves had prevented the formation of a new government. Due to the continuing trade and cultural ties between Iceland and Scandinavia proper, many of these chieftains were also part of the nobility of the mainland, particularly of the rising monarchy of Norway. Eager to find some way to end the destructive warfare that had raged across the island, 
the chieftains entered into negotiations with the king of Norway, and eventually agreed to name him king of Iceland as well. So, by the year 1300, the feuds of the chieftains had quieted down into the more familiar low-intensity feuding of a medieval landed aristocracy, under the distant suzerainty of the Norwegian monarchy. This turned out to be vital, as a climate shift had occurred around this time, called the Little Ice Age, which made cereal production on the island nearly impossible. As a result, the population of Iceland was dependent on trading ties with mainland Europe, with whom they traded salted cod for food. Let's go back to Jutland. Jutland has six historic regions, but I'm going to give you three. Northern Jutland is the big, bulbous, marshy northern half of Jutland. It is mostly agricultural even today. The second region is the southern half of Jutland, Schleswig-Holstein. Obviously by the name, it's really two regions, Schleswig and Holstein. But they share much culturally and historically, and I want to get this going, so for me they are one region. Schleswig-Holstein forms a narrow neck that separates the Baltic from the North Sea. Where the western shore meets the main coastline of Europe is the mouth of the Elbe River. We will talk about the Elbe more later, but suffice it to say that it is long, important, and provides vital trade routes into the interior of the continent. There are no long rivers on the eastern shore, but plenty of really good harbors, and given the narrowness of the peninsula here, while also being near the mouth of the Baltic to the north, the area became vitally important in trade. The most important cities I purposely left on the German side of the border so that we could talk about the Hanseatic League later. But for now I should say that the cities on the Baltic side of Schleswig-Holstein were some of the founding members of the Hanseatic League, a confederacy of trading cities that came to have a massive political power in the Baltic. They were able to acquire this power because trade was picking up in the Baltic, which had happened because the Wendish pirates had finally been suppressed in something called the Wendish Crusade, which we will discuss more later. But suffice it to say for now that by the year 1300, things had quieted down, allowing trade to resume. What, you may ask, was being traded? In the Middle Ages, the Baltic gave access to a massive amount of very important natural resources, being held by small, starving populations. The people in the north of the region held fish, iron, silver, massive quantities of wood, tar, flax, hemp, and furs. None of these are exactly high-value products like silk or spices, but they were very necessary to the European economy of 1300. In such prosaic materials is real money made, the kind of money that can then be frittered away on luxuries. The place a people had in this economy depended, as with so much else, on their location and circumstances. On the north and east sides of the Baltic, people had little use for wood or silver, which they had in overabundance, but they needed food. Not to give too much away, but on the south side of the Baltic, there was an awful lot of food and amber, but very little way to make use of the surpluses. As usual in history, those who controlled the natural resources were on the bottom of the food chain, shipping out massive quantities of product in return for just enough to survive, if that. The ones who made real money were in the cities on the western side of the Baltic, the ones able to strategically control access to the wider world's trade networks. This included the Hanseatic cities, but also the city of Copenhagen. Copenhagen is located on Zealand, one of the Danzig Islands that we discussed previously. These islands represent the third and final part of our look at Jutland. They are the original home of the Danish monarchy, and because of their location so close to the southern part of Sweden, form a vital choke point for those entering the Baltic. During the high point of the Viking Age, the Danes parlayed this position into great power, and some of that power was beginning to return as trade resumed in the Baltic. On the eastern side of Zealand, at one of the most important choke points in this area, was founded the city of Copenhagen. By holding this city, the monarchy could control access to the Baltic, and charge tolls for traders. 
The Hanseatic League recognized the importance of this and attacked the spot repeatedly, but the Danish crown held on, and by 1300 Copenhagen was growing rapidly in size. The Danish monarchy was not the most powerful in Scandinavia, but in the year 1300 controlled Jutland, large portions of the Swedish shores opposite Jutland, and much of the modern nation of Estonia, about which more in a later episode. The most powerful monarchy in 1300 was the Norwegian monarchy. Today, Norway is the area west and north of that spine of mountains on the outside curve of the Scandinavian peninsula, and this is the area I'm going to be looking at specifically now. This area was brought together by a monarchy that was actually ethnically German, which led to some odd developments. As we shall see in the Holy Roman Empire, kingship was elective upon the death of the old king. Unlike in Germany, the king was not held by the Norwegians to be an actual king, but to be holding the title on the sufferance of the long-dead Saint Olaf, who had converted Norway to Christianity. Nonetheless, in 1300, Norway was the most powerful Scandinavian monarchy, with holdings not only west and north of the mountains as today, but extending halfway into the plain on the east side of the mountains, and with titular lordship over Iceland and Greenland. With pressure from Norway on their western fronts, the Danish and Swedish monarchies seemed to have tried to take advantage of any opportunities that presented themselves to the east. Denmark, as we have seen, took over holdings in Sweden and the southern Baltic, while Sweden, as we shall discuss shortly, moved into Finland but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let's look at Norway. Norway is commonly held to have five regions, though they have no administrative or political function. The southernmost part of this holding we have already looked at a bit. It's the tip of the sickle and forms one of those peninsulas we talked about, and the extreme tip is called Southern Norway. This area seems like a nice place to visit, but is pretty rocky, which would not be great for farming. To the northeast of Southern Norway, right where the Norwegian peninsula meets the Swedish region of Gotland, there's a huge fjord, or drowned glacial valley, which connects with a number of rivers to provide easy access far inland. In addition, the area around this fjord is fertile, though hilly. Though technically on the east side of the mountains, this is still Norway as it is mostly on the peninsula. This area, up to the center of the mountains in the middle of the peninsula, is called Eastern Norway. At the top of the fjord is the city of Oslo. Oslo controls a large and fertile hinterland and participated in trade and in 1300 it had just become the official capital of the most powerful monarchy in Scandinavia. Things were good. West of the mountains is western Norway. Do you detect a pattern with the naming of these regions? This area is extremely mountainous, but with many fjords and lakes. People seem to have made their living as fishermen, with farming happening where it was possible, usually only in some of the larger valleys. For the most part, people lived in villages at the mouth of fjords and made their living through fishing. Some of the fjords reach unbelievably far inland, which allowed for easy access and communication. To the north of western Norway lies... Trondelhag. Ah, I bet you thought I was going to say... Well, never mind. Though somewhat squeezed between the mountains and the sea, the mountains are rather low here, meaning there is quite a bit of arable land in this region. The city of Trondheim is located in the south, near the border with western Norway. 1300 was not a great year for Trondheim. Trondheim had been the capital of Norway until 1299, when it moved to Oslo. Trondheim was kind of far from the action, though it had good access to the North Sea trade routes with Britain, Iceland, and Greenland. After the end of the Viking Age, these trade routes had stopped being all that important. The action was really moved to the Baltic. Nonetheless, Trondheim was an important city in a relatively fertile region, with good access across the mountains onto the Swedish plain. North of Trondelag is northern Norway. Only half of the area, now part of northern Norway, was actively controlled in 1300. The eastern portion of northern Norway was and is known as Finnmark, and was outside the control of Nordic settlers. This is not to say that it was uninhabited. 
Instead, it was controlled by the group called the Finns by the medieval Norwegians, the Laps by many people in the region, and the Sami by themselves. The Sami people have maintained a traditional semi-pastoralist lifestyle on the margins of Europe, and have been able to maintain their own culture and traditions to this day, despite large-scale persecution. Theirs is a somewhat tragic story, akin to that of the Native Americans. They speak a language completely unrelated to any of the other Nordic dialects, and archaeological evidence shows that they have likely been in the region since the first human settlement of the area. Traditionally, their main staple is reindeer, which they raise in herds, and which are able to get sustenance from the snow-covered grass in the tundra. Over the centuries, agriculturalists moved into the good areas to the south, forcing them further and further north, until today they cling to the most marginal lands at the edge of the world. On the other hand, the story is not so one-sided as it was in the New World. For one thing, the Sami enjoyed certain advantages in this northern climate. Their reindeer herding and pastoral lifestyle made them uniquely adapted to the region, and often the Nordic settlers from the south really couldn't compete with them in terms of ecological ability to get food. For much of recorded history, the Sami were able to make a living in the interior of Scandinavia, while the Nordic settlers were not, and so coexistence developed. In Norway, for example, Nordic communities would develop at the mouths of fjords and would live on fishing and trade. The Sami would live in the interior, only occasionally bringing items to the Europeans for trade. In Sweden and Finland, things were often even closer, as we shall see. This isn't to say that the Sami didn't face casual racism and persecution, just that it wasn't until the rise of industrialization and nationalism in the 19th century that the central governments began to try and enforce cultural standards on the indigenous people. At the same time, the material benefits of European civilization have meant that over the centuries, many Sami have joined in the Nordic communities that were their neighbors, so that most Sami now live in towns and cities. As in most of Europe, World War II changed the ability of modern society to accept explicitly racist policies, and although some problematic policies still persist, the worst examples were abandoned by the 70s. In fact, most Scandinavian governments now view the Sami as part of their shared cultural heritage, and make efforts to help the Sami preserve their way of life. At the same time, the Sami are increasingly able to make their voices heard politically, although this varies from country to country. The story of the Sami and the Norwegian fishermen is something that all the mainland Scandinavian countries had in common during the Middle Ages. They were all border nations, on the cusp of the Arctic Circle. In southern regions, life was often hard, but it had its rewards. In flat areas, farming was often possible and profitable, while coastal areas allowed fishing that could produce quite a lot of benefits, both in terms of calories and in terms of money. Forested regions similarly produced game and natural resources, and once cleared, could become productive farmland. But the further north one went, the more brutal the climate. Short, fly-infested summers broke up long winters when the sun never shone. There were resources to be had in these regions, and so the governments that existed encouraged settlement, but life was hard. The region of the interior and the north where Nordic settlers could not subsist was known by various names. In Norway, as we've seen, it was Finnmark, named because the Nordic settlers did not distinguish between the Sami and the Finnish tribes to the south. In Sweden and Finland, the area was called Lapland, based on a root word considered derogatory today by the Sami. These areas saw the creep of European settlement around the edges as agriculture and resource extraction for trade moved inland, and as the Sami began to accept outside influences. This sense of being in a border region on the edge of the world entered the cultural identity of the people in these northern countries. Sweden in 1300 was number three in terms of the Scandinavian power structure. We've discussed how the Danes controlled large parts of Gotland, that peninsula on the inside part of the sickle, 
while the Norwegians controlled a large strip of territory on the eastern, Swedish side of the Scandinavian mountains. The Swedish monarchy had only recently coalesced by merging the remaining parts of Gotland with Svealand, together forming about a third of the flat area on the concave part of the sickle, not in Norwegian hands. The most prominent location in this area was the city of Stockholm, which was rising to prominence as a clearinghouse of goods for sale to the Hanseatic League. The city is located at the mouth of a river, but there are many rivers in Scandinavia of varying navigability. The real strength of Stockholm was that it was located at a choke point in the Baltic Sea. Near Stockholm, the Baltic splits in three. To the south is the Baltic proper, to the north is the Bay of Bothnia, and to the west is the Gulf of Finland. Stockholm is conveniently located to all three. This, together with some structured deals with the Hanseatic League, and becoming the de facto capital of the Swedish monarchy, contributed to an explosive growth in the city between 1200 and 1300. North of Svealand, the entire top half of the inside of the sickle is an area called Norland. As we have discussed, however, most of the interior was not habitable to Nordic settlers at this time, so the monarchy effectively only controlled a strip along the coast. That said, the Swedish monarchy during this period was intensely interested in expanding its power by bringing new land under control, and so the area under settlement during this period was expanding up along the coast and around the Bay of Bothnia, stretching into areas that are currently part of Finland. Before we look at Finland, however, let's take a short detour and look at the Kola Peninsula, that area that points away from the blade of the sickle, which is now part of Russia. For most of its history, it, like most of the northern region, was chiefly inhabited by the Sami, by 1300, that was beginning to change. Russian settlers, called Pomors, had explored the area and began settling in the region. They founded a settlement which they called Murmansk, named for their word for Norman. Norman, Merman, you get it? From Murmansk, they hunted whales, caught fish, and bartered or hunted for food and pelts, and traded with other Pomor settlements further south. The inland part of the peninsula was, and remains, a Sami homeland due to its extreme climate. Murmansk has the interesting attribute of having a harbor that does not freeze up in winter, despite being above the Arctic Circle. Watch this space. I should note here that, though I call the Pomors Russian, this was by ethnicity, as there was no Russia yet. We will address this more fully in a few episodes. But during the early Middle Ages, there was a political entity called Kievan Rus, one of whose richest cities was Novgorod, located not far from the southern boundaries of Scandinavia. The Scandinavian countries had long-standing contacts of both a political and a trade nature with the Kievan Rus, but then Novgorod seceded from Kievan Rus, leading to worsening relations with Scandinavia, and notably with the Swedish monarchy. The Pomors had been followed into this region by tax collectors from Novgorod, and so the area of the Kola Peninsula was loosely under the control of Novgorod at this time. That leaves us with Finland and Karelia, which may be the most contentious part of this look at Scandinavia. These two areas make up the handle of the sickle, with Finland encompassing all the areas in the handle to the west of that central spine of hills that runs down the middle of the handle, while Karelia makes up the eastern side, as well as the southern borders. Both areas have a closely related history, so much so that the Kalevala serves as the national epic of both territories. Those of you who speak fluent Finnish will have recognized the intro to today's episode as the opening lines of the Kalevala. The rest of you now know, and know of its importance in today's story. For much of their history, these two regions have served as a border area between the Nordic countries to the west and the Russian countries to the east, with those in the center often being disrespected by both. Remember that the Norwegians often did not distinguish between the Sami and the Finns, which in the Middle Ages was not exactly a compliment. 
To add to this, there's some confusion about the ethnic origins of the Finns. This may seem odd to Americans, for whom the Finns are just another group of white people from a cold place. But while the Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes belong to a closely related family of Nordic people, all speaking similar languages, the Finns are an entirely separate ethnic group, and speak a language unique in Europe, but which is closely related to Sami. It seems that early in the Middle Ages, there were four different groups in the area. The Sami, who we have met, who made up a large portion of the population at this time. There were also Nordic and German settlers, who arrived in the western coastal regions by ship and established towns and cities in another familiar pattern. Pomor settlers were moving into the region from the south, along rivers and coastlines. But in the interior, there was a group unique to the region, a politically divided and diverse group of Finnic-speaking tribes who seemed to have still been in the process of migrating into the region when recorded history began. These tribes were in the process of moving from a pastoral lifestyle like the Sami to a settled farming lifestyle like the Nordic settlers, and where they were in this process isn't really clear. They are similar to the Sami in terms of political structure, language, and culture, but that they practiced a kind of semi-nomadic slash-and-burn agriculture. This meant that in the 1300s, they were too politically divided to stand up to more organized political entities, but they were able to survive in the region's interior and had a technological advantage over the Sami. It should also be noted that none of these groups were monolithic. Different Finnic tribes fought each other, and German and Nordic groups feuded for control of the coast, and though we would describe the Pomors as ethnically Russian, there wasn't actually a Russia yet. Gradually, all four groups would mingle and form a single culture, but in the year 1300, the area was still heavily divided by ethnicity. Along the west coast, the Norse and German traders were dominant, with the Pomors dominating on the east coast. In the southern interior, the Finnic tribes seemed to have held sway, and they in turn seemed to have been in the process of hybridizing or possibly driving out the Sami. The exact sequence of events is hard to discern, as the interior tribes seem to have been illiterate, while the records that survive from the settled communities are scanty. But by 1300, we start to have the tantalizing beginnings of a story. We discussed earlier how tensions were building between the Swedish monarchy and the new republic of Novgorod. This situation was not helped by the fact that the Swedes were gradually being brought solidly into the Catholic Church, while the Novgorodians were Eastern Orthodox and the Finns were pagan. Legend has it that a series of crusades followed, but this is on the cusp of available records. The first crusade, at least, is probably a myth, and most of what we know about the second is attested only by one side. There do seem to have been a series of constant simmering conflicts between all three sides, and what seems to have happened is that the Russians destroyed the ability of the Finns to resist without being able to assert control, at which point the Finns turned to the Swedish for aid. We can say with some certainty that the Swedish monarchy had asserted control over the tribes of southern Finland and parts of Karelia by 1250, a move that brought the conflict with Novgorod front and center. Karelia was extremely strategically sensitive to Novgorod, because their main trade routes went through the White Sea, and Karelia forms the western shore of that sea. Nevertheless, in 1293, history records somewhat more confidently that a third crusade secured Swedish holdings in the west and south. To get a firmer idea of where things stood in 1300, let's look at the regions. In the north, basically encompassing the entire area where the sickle blade meets the handle, is a region the Finns call Lapland, again using that somewhat derogatory term for the Sami. This area was thus obviously heavily peopled by the Sami, though some Swedish settlers had arrived along the southern coast. The area is relatively flat, but very far north. South of Lapland, to the west of the central ridge of hills in the handle of the sickle, is Ulu. Ulu, or the version of Ulu I am using today, 
was seeing some Norse and German settlement along the western coast, but was still mostly inhabited by the Sami and the Finnic tribes. The Swedes considered this area, as well as Lapland, to be part of their larger region of Norland at this time. On the other side of the hills, encompassing the entire east coast of the Handle of the Sickle, from the base of the Kola Peninsula down to its border with the mainland, is East Karelia. Records are very unclear, but the area would seem to have been heavily Finnic, with significant Pomor settlement as well. Certainly, the area seems to have been under Novgorodian control at this time, but the Swedes seem to have been able to cut off access at the southern border if they wished. To be fair, the Novgorod garrisons continued sporadic raids into the Swedish areas as well. The impression of the records of this period is that of a conflict very like the French and Indian War in North America. Militias, with a small smattering of regular troops, would conduct long-distance raids into enemy territory, mostly targeting women and children. Strategic advantage turned on the ability to build and hold forts. Unlike the French and Indian Wars, this conflict unrolled over the course of a century. The next region is Western Finland. If you remember the peninsula that hangs off the left-hand side of the handle of the sickle, this region is the northwestern coast of the peninsula. This area encompasses some of the areas most heavily settled by the Swedes, as the coast faces mainland Sweden. Though settlement was occurring all along the coast, the town of Turku was the administrative capital of all of the Swedish areas of Finland at this time. To the east is eastern Finland, an area inland between western Finland and the mountains. In 1300, the Swedish monarchy exerted some control over this area, but most of the population was Finnic and lived outside of their control. Southern Finland is the area along the southern border of the peninsula we have discussed, making up the shore of the Gulf of Finland. This area was pretty securely under the control of the Swedish monarchy, but there do not seem to have been any major settlements in 1300. Last but certainly not least is Western Karelia. This is the area mostly along the north side of the river Neva that borderland between Scandinavia and Russia. This area was directly involved in trade between Novgorod and the outside world, showed obvious commercial potential, and so was the area most heavily fought over in this time period. By 1300, the forces of the Swedish monarchy had established fortifications at the sites of the modern city of Vyborg and St. Petersburg, but in 1301 the latter was burned to the ground by Novgorodian forces. If you put together West Finland, East Finland, and South Finland, with Western Karelia, you get an area that the Swedes at this time called Osterland. For many years, Swedish nationalists would view this eastern land as a core part of Sweden. Indeed, there are many areas along the coast of this region that still contain native Swedish-speaking populations. But of course, for the modern state of Finland, it's the core part of the country. In the centuries to come, the fight between the Nordic countries and the Russians over Finland in general, and Karelia in particular, has had many twists and turns. The Finns did not enjoy independence as their own country until after World War I, but somehow developed a strong identity of their own despite centuries of foreign domination. Karelia has been used as a rallying cry by Finnish nationalists seeking to liberate it from Russia, which has led them to some less than savory allies. These days, Finland is a prosperous, western-oriented democracy, with excellent relations with Russia, and the easy cross-border access allowed since the fall of communism has allayed much of the tension around this subject. Nonetheless, I am often reminded as I do this research that people have killed and been killed within living memory over the definition of some of the things I am talking about. And so I always hope that I have not screwed things up over much in my brief survey. Of course, I am willing to hear corrections, and even more willing to hear praise, so feel free to email me at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com. In today's episode, we looked at Scandinavia, the mainland which includes Norway, 
Sweden, and Finland, as well as the Kola Peninsula and Karelia, and then the outer regions such as Jutland and Iceland. We also discussed the Viking Age, the rise of Baltic trade, and the place of Sami within Scandinavian history. Today's walking tour brought us to the borders of Russia, an area often ignored or rushed past in other histories of Europe. I'm very eager to avoid this disservice to a very interesting people with a pivotal role to play in our story, so the entire next episode of the walking tour will be devoted to Russia. You may think this is an awful lot of time to spend on just Russia, but keep in mind that you could fit roughly five British Isles in European Russia. We are going to have to wait four weeks to get to this story, however. Not because I'm about to have another series of unforeseen life events, but because I'm getting a little bit burned out on the whole walking tour thing. I had originally said that the entire background section was going to be six to ten episodes. We are now five episodes in, and we have not gotten past the walking tour, which, which I expected to just be one or two episodes. So I'm going to start talking about the other stuff that I wanted to talk about in the background, and I'm just going to start interspersing it into the walking tour. So as we go through, every couple of episodes or so, expect to see another one of these background episodes. So in two weeks, we can look forward to an episode on the class system in medieval Europe. This is a very interesting topic, and I hope that just like me, you can't wait to get to it. And then, of course, two weeks after that, we'll get back to Russia and the walking tour. Before we go, I should thank Rainy Logan for doing the intro and reading the lines of the Kavala for today's episode. She's in a great band, probably my favorite band in the Worcester area, called Rotating Strawberry Madonna, and you should check them out. They have some stuff up on Facebook and YouTube, and they have a nice website where you can buy albums, all the usual modern stuff for bands. It's really good and definitely worth your time, especially if you're into post-hardcore acts like McCluskey or Future of the Left. But now it's time to listen to our outro music, which, just like our intro music, is comes to us courtesy of Not A Surf. So as always, I'd like to thank them for letting me use their music, and see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.